Hi, this is Matt, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. Hi, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. Um, this is the first of some really special episodes I'm putting together to celebrate Earl Scruggs. Uh, January 6th would have been Earl's 100th birthday, and there's all sorts going on to celebrate, and I was planning to get these episodes out around then, but... Um, good news, lots of people have said they want to talk to me and so I am still putting bits together, um, which is a great position to be in. You know, it's great to celebrate Earl whenever we get to celebrate Earl, so I'm in no rush to get these all out immediately. Um, but the good news is the first one is ready. And this is the first of, I think, probably three parts. I'm going to avoid doing the two and a half hour marathon episodes that I did for Doc and for Tony Rice's Church Street Blues, partly because... Two and a half hours part one, two and a half hours part two is a lot to sit through. But also, um, the file sizes get quite big, and I have to reduce the quality to get them down to a size the podcast platforms will take. I'm not keen on doing that. Um, So I'm going to keep these a bit shorter, and you're going to get a few guests with sort of in-depth interviews in each one. And the first one, we're going to kick off with three legends of the banjo world. Um... You are going to hear from Tony Trishka, you are going to hear from Kristen Scott Benson, and you're going to hear from Alan Mundy. Um, all three of them, fascinating conversations about Earl and his influence. Um, just, I learned so much, very cool, really enjoyed them. Um, and I'll let you know a bit more about who's coming in the other episodes. There's some great names coming up in those as well. I'll tell you a bit more about those at the end. Um, the first person you're going to hear is Tony Trishka. And I've spoken to Tony before, I love talking to Tony, he's, you know, he's generous and warm and funny and interesting and all of those things and also happens to be a legend of the banjo world um we chatted about Earl and partway through Tony grabbed his banjo and said can I play you some bits and we hadn't planned that and it wasn't sort of mic'd up separately so what happened was that the sound is a bit phased on the banjo and I thought about leaving it out and trimming it all down and just losing those bits but they're so good and they're so interesting and Tony talks about some of the things Earl's played and he talks about tunings and I kind of figured I'm going to leave them in. Um, So the sound's not ideal on those, but I think in terms of the context and the content, they're worth hearing. So I've left them in because I find them really interesting and I'm sure you will do too. Um, So first up is Tony Trishka talking about the influence of Earl Scruggs. I mean, he's been such a huge, gigantic influence on my life. I, I wouldn't I'd be selling shoes, as I always say, if I went for Earl's drugs. And uh, so, I mean, he's had a profound influence on my life, as he has. And you met Earl when you were fairly young, didn't you? I met him somewhere in the 70s when he was with the Review, um, kind of in passing. And uh, then I got to know him more in uh, in his later years. And in my later years, for that matter, kind of, we do that together. Um I was fortunate to have him uh, play uh, Farewell Blues on my Double Banjo Bluegrass Spectacular album. And I just remember sitting knee to knee with him. We recorded it in Vela's basement. He's got a studio there. We're knee to knee working up a double banjo part uh, for Farewell Blues, which he recorded in 1949 or 1950. And and thinking, wait, it's Earl. Because Earl was a very laid back guy. But then it's Earl Scruggs. What? It's crazy. Uh, so that was a thrill to say the least. But the first time that I really um, spent any time hanging out with him was, I don't remember the exact, actually it was, it was 1990. I was on my way to the 
second Tennessee Banjo Institute gathering in Lebanon, Tennessee. And, or, you know, folks down south would sometimes say, yeah, if you're ever in our part of the country, come on down and pay a visit. So Earl said that, and I had his phone number, and I called him up when we were going to do this gathering, me and a friend, uh, when Earl was still living in Madison, Tennessee, and get to his house, knock on the door, and Earl Scruggs answers the door. I was like, wow, that's, there's only one house where that would happen in this whole world. Hmm. And we walk in, and Earl wasn't like the most ebullient sort of person. He didn't, he wasn't like really talkative. He, he would certainly talk. He wasn't necessarily shy, although he certainly was as a child. But uh, we go in there and he's sitting in this, you know, really nice easy chair. And my friend and I are on the little couch on the side. And as I always say, I wasn't sure if I should kiss his pick or not. It was like a meeting with a Pope or something. And we talked about the weather for about five minutes. And then, I just asked him about the old days because that conversation wasn't going very far. And he just opened up and just told all these really kind of fun stories. He talked about how when he and Lester were doing the Beverly Hill Hillbillies and Paul Henning, who was the producer of that, was going to do the next show, uh, Petticoat Junction, and how Paul Henning wanted Earl to be the engineer in that TV show. But Earl said, well, it'll break up Flatt and Scruggs. And Paul Henning said, no, well, we'll get you. We'll fly you back for the Saturday Night Opry every week from Hollywood. And uh, it never came to pass. But I always wonder how banjo history would have changed if he'd been in the engineer in the Beverly Hill, Hillbillies. And uh, he talked about how in the 50s and 40s, too, when you'd have a skinhead on your banjo and it would get loose, you know, depending on the weather, make a fire in the fireplace and put the banjo close to the fire to dry out the head and tighten it up just things like that um so it was just a thrill to you know spend a little time just hanging out hanging out with Earl another thing that's come to light that's equally amazing as all these 200 or more tunes uh, from these jam sessions is um, I got friendly with a woman named Mary Beth from the Earl. She's the director of the Earl Scruggs Center. And she called me this past January and said that after Gary Scruggs died uh, a few months before in 2022, uh, that all of Earl's ephemera, which was Gary was the last surviving son. All of that went to the Earl Scruggs Center. And as Mary Beth was going through banjos and picks and whatever books, whatever from uh, Earl and Louise, Earl's wife, they found, she found this Mickey Mouse notebook. It was like a spiral bound notebook with a nice full color picture of Mickey Mouse on the cover. And she's going, what is this? And she opens it up and there in Earl's handwriting is page after page, about 60 pages telling his, uh, life story without it wasn't like a diary necessarily and it wasn't uh organized anyway it was just his thoughts he one day he'd just sit down and write his thoughts on his childhood or playing with lost john miller with gentleman he played with before he was with uh bill monroe and this is like precious material here just earl's own telling his own story how he was always a home-loving boy and never wanted to leave uh Flint Hill, North Carolina, and look what ha happened to him. He said, yeah, maybe someday I'll have move to Asheville up in the mountains and have a mountain stream going through my house, things like that. 
or talking about how he met Bill Monroe for the first time and auditioned for him, where he was playing with this guy, Lost John Miller, who lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, Lost John was getting off the road, and uh, one of Bill Monroe's fiddlers wanted Earl to audition for Monroe. So the idea was Lost John Miller on the way to Knoxville would drop Earl off in in, uh, Nashville, and they'd audition for Bill, maybe at the Tulane Hotel. And then uh, they would both drive back to Knoxville for Earl to get his stuff. So they show up at the appointed time. Monroe's an hour late, hour and a half late. Finally, Monroe shows up and Lost John Miller's... Actually, before Monroe showed up, Lost John Miller said, hey, I've got to get back to Knoxville. I can't wait any longer. You'll have to take the bus back. So anyway, after three hours, three hours late, Bill Monroe shows up. And Earl's first impression of, of him was, what a beautiful head of hair he had. <clears throat> and uh, meanwhile, Earl had the flu, had a really bad case of the flu. So he figures, okay, I'll just audition for Monroe and catch a, catch a bus back to Knoxville. So he auditions for Monroe and plays Sally Gooden and Dear Old Dixie. And then all Earl wants to do is leave. And Monroe says, well, you sound good, but I want you to practice with the Bluegrass Boys and see how you sound with the band. So they spend another two hours, you know, rehearsing and seeing how how Earl fits in with the band. <coughs> and then Earl says, look, I really have to go. Of course, he won. The, he got the audition. He, he got the spot with Bill. This would have been late 1945. So uh, he says, okay, I've got to catch a bus. And Bill says, okay, well, I'll, I'll send you your bus fare. You tell me how much it is. And Earl says, well, it's going to be $7.00 gets to the bus station around 11 o'clock that night, gets on the bus. There are no seats left. He has to stand till seven in the morning with the flu, bad case of the flu. And uh, finally gets to Knoxville and Monroe never sent him the $7. So anyway, and just, just amazing stories like that. Just deep insight into Earl Earl's life. You know how he was so obsessed with the music. He'd be working a plow and he would have, uh, he'd be like doing the left hand of the banjo on the one, you know, with his left hand to the plow and then the right hand doing picking patterns while he's plowing the fields, which I can remember that myself sitting in high school class playing Foggy Mountain Breakdown on the, uh, you know, on the desk while the teacher's holding forth on social studies or something. Hmm. Anyway. So. And for, yeah, for somebody who was such a homebody, as you say, and, you know, didn't necessarily have ambitions to, to travel that far, the world is much richer because he did. Of course. I mean, how many, literally hundreds of thousands of people, probably millions, depending on how you want to look at it, was Bluegrass, Bluegrass before Earl Scruggs joined the band and made it what it was, you know, what it's become. Not to mention just every banjo player who plays Bluegrass, you have to go to Earl. So, yeah, it's had a profound effect. And it, that's a really interesting point because we, you know, I think people get a bit caught up in the um, the sort of creation myth of bluegrass a little bit and talking about Bill Monroe and talking about, you know, we like to choose a point where things started and things happened. And But everybody, you know, I've talked to in preparation for getting these interviews together has basically said bluegrass wouldn't have been bluegrass without Earl. It was when Bill and Earl met that it all really kicked off. Right. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's the classic band uh, and, you know, starting in 1945 with Lester, who didn't want another banjo player in the band, apparently, because 
banjo players were comedians, like Uncle Dave Macon and String Bean, who was with Monroe before Earl, before Earl joined. And then, of course, once he heard Earl, oh, okay, this is probably a pretty good idea. Um, I mean, one could make the argument that Don Reno had auditioned for Bill Monroe in 1943, but said, you know, if I can join the Army, if, if I'm accepted into the Army, then I'd like to do that. I want to fight for my country. Uh, and he did get, he did win the audition with Bill Monroe. And Don Reno once told me that somewhere in the later 30s, uh, Don was at... Uh, at some radio station doing a radio show with whoever he was with at that point. And this young kid in North Carolina, and this young kid would show up every, you know, I think it was a once a week kind of show would show up and just kind of stand in the corner listening. And after three or four weeks, finally got up his gumption <clears throat> to go over to Don and say, <clears throat> excuse me, to say, um, uh, my name's Earl Scruggs and, uh, I play the banjo and I sure like you're playing something to that effect. Don Reno told me that story that, uh, so Don was playing professionally before Earl was. Uh, and if Don Reno had not been accepted into the army in the 1943 had been playing with Bill Monroe, maybe we'd be playing all playing Reno style. And there are recordings on YouTube of Don Reno with Bill Monroe, and it doesn't quite have the rhythmic syncopated, uh, sophistication of Earl but it's three finger picking, uh, but it didn't happen. And so Don went into the army, came back in 1940, late 45, early 46, something like that. And everyone said, Hey, you sound just like Earl Scruggs. Cause Earl meanwhile was recording for Columbia records with, with Monroe and was on the Opry and that sort of thing. So it's just interesting, but yeah, you can make a case for that band with Chubby Weiss and Lester and, uh, and Bill was the big bang of bluegrass. And it feels like, um, you know, it's pretty impossible for anybody to play three finger banjo and not be influenced by Earl, even if they'd never heard him because that influence, whoever they had heard would have been influenced by Earl. But it feels like it goes beyond that as well. You listen to sort of the way Jerry Douglas plays the dobro, or you listen to the influence that sort of Clarence White has had on guitar playing. And Earl was so obviously, or banjo playing in general, but it feels like Earl was such a inspiration to Clarence, just in the way that he approached the guitar. I was almost trying to take the guitar back to a, a banjo sensibility in some ways with the cross-picking. And it feels like Earl's influence is much, much bigger than than the banjo. And Jesse McReynolds, the same thing, doing banjo mm. roles. I'm sure it was Earl that influenced him to do that. Um, yeah, uh, just and and just uh, in the early seventies, with David Bromberg's band and Earl's band and Nitty Gritty Dirt band and um, all these bluegrass oriented bands that would maybe add drums and could stretch things and reach a wider audience, um, it influenced a lot of people in that more general way. Let's do this roots based music, but you know, rockify it a little bit uh, because in the early seventies. We used to play, I was in this band called Breakfast Special and we'd play all these festivals. And what was happening at that time was a lot of the rock festivals had injunctions against them because the local folks didn't want to have all these hippies and motorcycle gangs showing up and be spoiling their, their natural habitats. <laughs> I put quotes around that, of course. <laughs> but uh, we would play these festivals and you'd get some of the hardcore bluegrass folks. You'd have Red Allen there. 
uh, and you'd have the Earl Scruggs review. And then we played these peace, love and bluegrass festivals is what they were called trying to attract that quote hippie audience. And, um, and uh, a guy named Jim Clark was running these festivals. He, he often didn't like to pay the bands, but that's another story. But you show up and you get some really traditional bluegrass singer, or you get Will Milling and Stoney Cooper or something. And uh, again, I'll refer to them as hippies, but young folks, you know, with the shirts off, dancing, grooving to the music. And you'd get motorcycle gangs. And I remember this one festival we played where we were, we'd be on uh, in the, during the day doing more bluegrass oriented set. And then the evening I'd be playing steel guitar and uh, we'd have our drummer come out and join us. And uh, Andy Statman, our mandolin player would play saxophone and we'd rock out a little bit. And all the traditional folks would go back to their campers and the motorcycle gangs would come up to the front. And I remember playing steel guitar, you know, like a midnight set or something and looking over and there's a guy in full colors from the pagans sitting on the stage next to me with a, knife with a huge blade on it, carving up a watermelon and just, Hey, how you doing? You know? And uh, it was, it was a different time, you know, lots of drugs and lots of partying and that sort of thing. But, you know, the Earl Scruggs review was all part of that. And, uh, not to associate Earl with all that sort of stuff, but he was a very liberal oriented person. And with the review, he would, he would, uh, he had this, uh, banjo strap on with a peace sign on it and they played a Vietnam anti-Vietnam war rally and things like that. I mean, he was obviously influenced by his sons, but you know, probably I mean, he was one of the few people in Nashville that had those kind of political leanings. And he seems to have been just sort of musically and in, in general from the things I've read and things people say about him, just a, a kind of progressive, progressive person, you know, the, to do what he did on the banjo, which we listen to now and, just sounds like you expect bluegrass banjo to sound, but that was pretty radical at the time. And, you know, as, as you sort of mentioned, there were other people doing similar things around that time, but it yeah. was a very progressive sound at that point. And it was, it seems only natural. He would then want to progress from that and see where else he could go. Exactly. He didn't necessarily, I mean, what, what he said to me one time was what he thought he brought to the banjo was syncopation, which um, would be, you know, just having the beat land or the accent land off the beat, just as, you know, where you expected the land on the downbeat, it would land on the upbeat or in between the downbeat and the upbeat. <clears throat> and um, can I play something? Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could edit this out. I'm just uh, picking up the banjo for the first time today, but I can play a little bit of Cripple Creek as he played it on one of these jams. Because when I first started listening to these jams, I was going for the tunes that I'd never heard him play before. Hmm. Brown's Ferry Blues, you know, that he'd never recorded, or um, Bury Me Beneath the Willow. But then I started listening to these other tunes like Cripple Creek. Well, let's see what he did on, on these. And I listened to five or six of the eight versions. And they, it was all kind of the way he recorded them recorded it on Foggy Mountain Banjo, but then this one take, he did something like this. What? First of all, to go... 
just he was just flowing at this point. He's just jamming with Earl. I mean, uh, with John Hartford, and all these things would come out. And his playing was really great. He could play really fast. He was playing really fast, really clean. And on some of the recordings, recordings you hear from this era, he sounds good, but it's not quite as exciting or in just as amazing as some of these things he's doing in these jam sessions. But most amazing was this business. This bluesy thing on Cripple Creek. And again, he's doing all these backward rolls. Which creates this natural syncopation because you have these three note rolls. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, middle index thumb, middle index thumb, and so on and so forth. That was just one of the most amazing things of all these, of all the tunes in the jam sessions. That was the thing that really blew me away was that, but there were lots of different things like that. Maybe not as quote radical as that. Uh, but again, that's the syncopation thing that he thought he brought to bluegrass. So, and that's such a cool sound because in a, a music like bluegrass, which is often pretty driving and it's often pretty um, like relentless groups of four notes kind of just sort of hammering away, hammering away, hammering, which is one of the most exciting things about bluegrass. When you start moving that around the bar line, like Earl would do, like, Clarence would do Billy Strings does it now he'll hang on a note and he'll kind of go completely against stuff to create some right. tension and that syncopation against the relentless movement is just one of the most cool things in the music sometimes yeah oh absolutely and Earl did that in all sorts of different ways I mean he did it okay I'll grab this little banjo one more time he did that he'd been doing that for years he did it in 19 again 1949-1950 on Farewell Blues that early on, he was doing, I use the term Earl, meaning early, not Earl, um, on Farewell Blues. Uh, which is fairly straightforward, rhythmically speaking. You know. But then one of the last breaks he takes this is what after um, he and lester left monroe you know started the foggy mountain boys he goes uh, uh, go into it business it's all backward rolls just as he was doing in that um, version of cripple creek middle index thumb middle index thumb gripping of three again plus he is doing this he's in the key of c here's c he's hitting this note one half step above c c sharp which is really pretty angular mm. and why he did that who knows but again, he was in his mid to late, slightly later twenties and already was doing this really pretty radical stuff. I think the third, the first thing that really grabbed my ear, um, and noticed like Earl Scruggs as a name on, on a track was the solo in don't get above your raising. That's got this lovely octave thing that just climbs up semitones. That's all kind of against the beat. And, you know, it's those things that, much as the just the fast continuous picking stuff is is really cool to listen to, it's those things that drag your ear away from the bar line and just give you 
a moment of just like, oh, where are we going? You know, I love all that. Yeah. And he was obviously listening to swing music, you know. That whole thing, which is basically, it's something he did on um, Heavy Traffic Ahead. It was one of the first, uh, is the first time that Earl ever went into the studio, in the very, which was with Bill Monroe. And the first song he played with Bill Monroe was uh, Heavy Traffic Ahead. And on that recording, he went. And I, I talked to Earl about that. And he said that that was, um, he called it Boogie Woogie, his Boogie Woogie music or a Boogie Woogie solo. And it was based on a tune called Step It Up and Go, which was this swing kind of a tune. So he was listening to other things. And that's that's not easy to play, that. And so that's all, um, again, this boogie-woogie style, he would talk about it in that sense, but he recorded at least one or two tunes with, with Monroe taking that solo on a blues tune, including heavy traffic ahead. And then, um, again, on foggy mountain, uh, foggy mountain special, which he recorded on, uh, foggy mountain jamboree, that album, he, he, he decided to turn it into something and, you know, took writer's credit on it because he came up with that solo and, and that became the basis for that, for that tune. And he would use it here and there at various times. There are various tunes, bluesy sort of tunes in these jam sessions with John Hartford where he does that kind of solo with lots of different variations taking all different places. But yeah, and that's a very syncopated, swingy, jazzy kind of a thing. So his ears were wide mm -hmm. open. And he mentioned that in 1962, he was doing a CBS special with Lester. And King Curtis, the sax player, was on the bill. And he, I don't remember if he actually jammed with King Curtis on saxophone. But he wanted to, you know, I'd love to play with this guy and see what kind of music we can can make. So he was his ears were wide open uh, re, since his childhood, really, to do things like that. And it's all one of the ironies, isn't it? Is that um, that sort of era of bluegrass? Some people get sort of hyper traditional about it and sort of try and set it in stone as a fixed thing. And that is the irony that the people who made that music, as you say, had their ears wide open and were looking up and out and forward and back at the same time and you know just taking things wherever they thought they could go yeah bill monroe too uh one of the greatest mandolin solos ever taken is on the prisoner's song the original version of the prisoner's song that that uh, that bill monroe did um in the kind of early to mid 50s and you'd start listening to wait there's electric guitar on here there's piano on here and uh so they were just trying things. You know, maybe that was the producer trying to make Bill more commercial or something. But, you know, this music didn't exist as such until Bill Monroe came up with it, going from duos with Charlie, his brother. And then uh, and then in the uh, like maybe 1942, a couple of times during the earlier 40s, he had banjo, he had, four string, he had a four-string banjo player playing with him. I think maybe on two different occasions, two different four-string banjo players. So he was trying different things. And you listen to his playing um, in 1944, just before Earl joined, when String Bean was in the band, and Sally Forrester was playing uh, accordion in the band, Howdy Forrester's wife. And it sounds like swing music. The guitar player is sort of socking offbeat rhythms, and it's swing music. Mm. 
as opposed to what we today call bluegrass. Sam Bush told me this story one time that he was at a party in Nashville and uh, whenever this was, and someone came up to him and said, oh, would you like to meet Sally Forrester? And he said, yeah, a woman who played accordion with Bill Monroe in 1944. I'd love to meet Sally Forrester. And so uh, he goes over and he's introduced to Sally Forrester and said, Sally Forrester, God, such an honor to meet you. And she said, well, my name is actually not Sally. It's actually Wilhelmina. People call me Billy. And when I joined Bill Monroe, he said, well, we can't have two Billies in the band, so I'm going to call you Sally Ann Forrester. So he named her for her purposes with when he, she was with Monroe after a fiddle tune, Sally Ann. So that wasn't her actual name, even though she's known as Sally Ann Forrester. So it's a part of the history. There are definitely, um, definitely worse fiddle tunes to be named after. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and do you think it's interesting sort of talking about um, – Bill Abner, full string banjo player, and you talked earlier about the sort of the comedic tradition of banjo in string band music. And do you think Earl played a part in steering it away from that? Because like, and the the instrument just being taken seriously as an instrument without needing the comedy, right? Yeah, think, I mean, obviously there were other man, like other banjo players. I mean, I was going to say Charlie Poole, except Charlie Poole, um, I got to meet his nephew. I think I can't remember his name. Kenny Rohrer, anyway. Posey Rohrer was Charlie Poole's um, fiddler back in the 30s. But Kenny Rohrer took me on a tour of Eden, North Carolina, where Charlie worked in the mill and and, um, played music. And uh, he said that that Charlie Poole would do like stage dives and cartwheels on stage and things like that. I was about to say Charlie Poole. Well, he was kind of straight ahead, but I guess he wasn't actually... He was an entertainer. But a lot of these groups were like that. I remember talking to Earl. I would call him on his birthday. And uh, we're talking for a minute. And he said, I, to me, he said, I hear you have a new show. And I thought he was confusing me with someone else. And I realized he meant by show, you have a new band. Because Flatt and Scruggs would do a show. They would have these comedic moments. Or Lester would do, a, once the Beverly Hillbillies became really popular, once the song that tune became popular, in the show that Flat and Scruggs would be on from time to time, you know, they would bring some of that into their on stage performances and Lester would do a dance sort of like Jed Clampett would do. And uh, while well, the rest of the band played. So it, it was a show. It wasn't just, there was entertainment value. It wasn't just hot picking. Mm. So yeah, that's how things were back then. So anyway. And you've got, um, you've got some plans next year to celebrate Earl in the year of his hundredth birthday. Haven't you? You've got some live shows lined up. Yep, I'm doing uh, a bunch of shows. Uh, I have a new agent, Lee Olson, who's wonderful, who I've known since the 80s. And, um, yeah, it's uh, we call it Earl Jam, you know. And uh, we're playing around in North Carolina. We're playing at the Earl Scruggs Center. Uh, Jerry Douglas is hosting a show down there. And we're playing on uh, at the Earl Scruggs Center in January. I think it might be on his birthday, actually. January 6th, January 7th, around there. Uh, plus I'm doing the Opry on January 5th. And then the second night after that, and doing, you know, two or three songs of Earl's, a lot of them from these jam sessions. And then the next night on January 6th, there's a celebration of Earl's birthday, hundredth birthday. What would have been his hundredth birthday at the Ryman auditorium. And I'm going to be doing that. Uh, maybe sitting in with Del McCurry. I'm not sure yet, but, uh, I'm going to do a tune that one of the more fascinating aspects of these jams is there's a tune that Earl plays just solo. He's 
it's just him and John, John and they're sitting around and Earl's just playing this. And he says, this is a tune that I used to play. Uh, I used to play just at square dances. Sometimes when I would just be the only musician, I would play this tune. And it was a fiddle tune called shout little Lulu. Mm. Should I play that? Yeah. I've, um, there was a track on the last Tim O'Brien record called shout, shout Lulu. That was a kind of a direct inspiration from that. Oh, really? Yeah. I think he got it from maybe from Ralph Stanley. Well, Ralph Stanley used to play that. Ralph Stanley would do a claw hammer tune Mm. and it would often be that. I think he's, Ralph said that his mother would play it. Something like that. So it's drop C tuning, and it's very simple, but very almost trance-like. And he plays it two or three times in these jam sessions. And so to me, that was like, geez, this is what he was playing when he was a teenager, you know, because what, what was he playing before he joined Bill Monroe? We don't know. There are no mm. recordings of him with Lost John Miller. So this is kind of a clue. And he probably, he played it fairly similarly from one jam to another. So he probably, it's probably a pretty accurate rendition of what he was doing when he was, you know, who knows, 13, 14, 15 years old, playing locally in South Central North Carolina. And I guess if you're playing people to dance, you may well be playing the tune for quite a while. Yeah. Um, you'd play it for, you know, six, seven, eight minutes, whatever, as people are dancing mm-hmm. and just getting into the groove of it. And it would ju- it would just be him, as he said. It would, there were no other musicians. There would be certain circumstances. Maybe a fiddler couldn't make it. And he would just, it would just be him. And he'd play something like that. And just talk about different tunings, if I can digress or continue progressing. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, produced Steve Martin's second album of recent times, second banjo album uh, called Red, Rare, Rare Bird Alert. And I went out to uh, Missouri, uh, to not Branson, but near an hour from Branson or something, with uh, Steve and the Steve Canyon Rangers to work on some pre-production ideas. And Earl Scruggs was, Earl was opening up for Steve. And some at some point I'm backstage and Earl's uh, road manager says, hey, would you like to play the banjo, meaning Earl's banjo? And I went, yeah, that'd be really nice. So I went over to Earl's dressing room and um, Earl hands me his banjo and I start playing on it. And um, I think I played ground speed and, and Steve was back there also. And so I hand this banjo over to Steve and Steve puts it into... double C tuning because Steve liked to play still likes to play in double C tuning a lot and then Steve hands it over to Earl and I never heard Earl play record anything in double C tuning and out of uh, G tuning you tune the second string up to C and the fourth string down to C and without batting an eyelash Earl starts playing Brown's Fairy Blues he just played it one time through and I all I really remember is the first part of it. 
and I sort of make up the rest, but it was really cool. And just the fact that he's playing in double C tuning, which it's not that different, but he played this perfect version of Brown's Fairy Blues, something like... With this first part. That much I remember. The rest is somewhat made up, but, you know, in the style of what he would have done. But that was so cool. But then in these jam sessions, he plays Brown's Fairy Blues a bunch of times, but in just standard G tuning. <laughs> so even tunes, you know, he wouldn't just take a tune and only play it one way. He would do it sometimes radically different, totally different keys in different tunings. And um, we went to this uh, tribute to Earl after he passed at the Ryman and we're watching and they're showing there. Emmy Lou Harris was talking, Vince Gill was talking, and you know, about the relationship with Earl and they were showing videos from these Martha White shows. And at one point in the middle of um, a fiddle tune, a fiddle banjo duet with Paul Warren, Earl starts doing claw hammer in the background. And we're going, what? And I talked to Earl's son, Gary, about it one time. He said, oh, yeah, he would play uh, claw hammer around the, around the house sometimes. He would play in, uh, he would do two finger picking like he did before he started playing three finger picking just to do it. And, and sometimes he'd play out of modal tuning, which is, here's G tuning, but he would tune the second string up to C. some modal sounding thing. He would do things like that. So just things that we never heard him do before, but I just happened to hear him do Brown's Fairy Blues in that double C tuning. So he was always trying things and experimenting. And even later in his life in these jams, he's doing these crazy things. Uh, just wide open. And it's only, I think it's only when I heard the, the three pickers CD that it dawned on me that all that cool guitar playing on some of the gospel tunes was Earl. You know, there's right. some some beautiful guitar playing on some of those cuts, and Gorgeous. I just hadn't I just hadn't realized, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you know, they do. I think it's "Who Will Sing for Me" on the Three Pickers album, and it, you watch the DVD and it's oh, Earl's playing the guitar, right? You know, and like just that on its own is a a wonderful thing. Yeah, he had this. You know, I mean, he was he was a huge fan of the Carter family and Mother Maybell in particular, which she didn't play like that, but. Uh, you know, he might have been influenced to play guitar. I never talked to him about it, but from Mother Maybell. But he had, you know, it was kind of an original style to my way of thinking, you know. And uh, the groove, of course, his right hand was like so amazing. So, uh, but yeah, some, even as early as the Mercury recordings in the early 50s, he was playing guitar. So that was early on. I think he played some fiddle too. Um, I think when he was with Lost John Miller, Lost John maybe wanted him to play fiddle, but decided, oh, we'll have this guy play banjo, which is probably a pretty good move. But how how did Earl sound on fiddle? Be curious to know. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, well, you know, just even it's like you were saying, you, you probably know more about Earl's music than most people. And just to discover there's all these things that you didn't know through the notebook, through these recordings, you know, and it feels like a 100th birthday year is the perfect time for 
all these conversations to surface again and for another generation to find out more stuff and just to, like like we did with Doc Watson this year, just to celebrate it all again and give another generation the chance to find out some of this and keep the music moving, keep it alive, keep it influencing more people. Right, right. And it all had a spiritual side, or not quite spiritual, but in the Star Wars sense of things. Um, he played, at least on two occasions, in a place called B.B. King's on 42nd Street in New York City, and I would go down to see him. And afterwards, after the band, the band would leave pretty quickly to head back to the hotel, but Gary Scruggs, you know, Earl's son, who played bass in the band, would hang out to get paid. And he would say, Tony, why don't you hang out with Dad while I go get paid? And so I'd sit in this dressing room with Earl, just the two of us, for you know, 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever, just talking about stuff. And at one of these occasions, this woman comes backstage kind of drunk and um, complaining about the fact that she hadn't been paid yet. And she's sort of going on and on. She says, who are you? And I said, I'm Tony Trishka. And she leans or talks to Earl and says, who are you? I'm Earl Scruggs. It's Earl Scruggs, you idiot. But anyway, she didn't know that and, uh, and didn't care, had no idea who this guy was. And she's going on. She's like, she's like talking for about five minutes. I'm about to stand up to just, I'm not, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but it just, it was sort of an imposition on Earl. It seemed to me he'd just done a show. He wanted to relax. And this woman's sort of yammering at us. So about to stand up and he, and he just kind of looks up at her and says, nice to meet you. And she says, nice to meet you. And she leaves. It was sort of like an Obi-Wan Kenobi moment. Uh, <laughs> these are not the droids you're looking for. Earl just very sweetly said, nice to meet you. And she just, walked away so <laughs> he had these other powers that we knew nothing about <laughs> it's wonderful so that was tony trishka um always a joy always a joy talking to tony um next up we got Kristen scott benson who is multiple winner of the ibma banjo player of the year award also a past recipient of the steve martin banjo prize and a longtime member of Graskels. and then before i spoke to Kristen, i'd read a piece that she'd written when Earl passed and i'd sort of started by asking a question about that um and the response was really interesting and the rest of the conversation was just great i really enjoyed this one so here comes Kristen scott benson um but i thought i might start by just reading out a quote from the piece that you wrote that was in bluegrass today just after earl passed if that's all right because it might be quite a nice sort of jumping off point um so there was lots of lovely bits in the piece that you wrote but the, the thing i particularly sort of hit me straight away was um this paragraph Bluegrass banjo playing is odd. The goal in many ways is to replicate the past. For many listeners and players alike, your worth as a bluegrass banjo player is gauged by how closely you can emulate what Earl did back in the late 40s, 50s and 60s. I'm not aware of any other instrument in any other genre of music that places such a strong emphasis on re- recreating the past. Perhaps it's because Earl set the standard so high. And I think that's a lovely sentiment. And I think it's true. I can't think of anywhere else where your job is essentially to do something that's already happened. That's right. I mean, bluegrass banjo playing has definitely evolved, and everybody, even within the the bluegrass framework, has a little bit of their own identity. But for the most part, we're just still trying to do the same stuff that he did. And I think it just speaks to his genius and uh, the level to which he was able to create a vernacular that serves an entire genre so well. And it, it sort of, it does run through all the banjo playing that you hear. And I was thinking about this in the way that, you know, there isn't a guitarist or a mandolin player who exclude or a fiddler that sort of exclusively set that style in 
stone things have come since the 40s and 50s that have advanced that and changed that and yeah i agree with that yeah i think that uh like you can listen to first generation mandolin and as brilliant as it is and as vibrant as it still is um it's definitely become a new thing and we didn't even have uh we had cross-picking guitar with uh the Stanley Brothers tradition, but we certainly didn't have, you know, a rice style model until much later uh, in the music's development. And then you look at fiddle, and I mean, I'm a Benny Martin fanatic, and uh, I would say that maybe we're a little more closely related uh, to the first generation fiddle players, uh, but you still just have these gigantic leaps. Now, banjo has that for sure. If you listen, Obviously, to players like um, Bill Keith, who set a new standard and a new style. And even if you look at the first, I think of it kind of as like a a banjo family tree. If you look at the first three guys, you had Ralph Stanley, Don Reno, and Earl Scruggs. And those guys were drastically different stylistically. And then if you just look at the branches that have spawned kind of under each of those guys, you just have a lot of players under that Scruggs style umbrella. And then there are definitely innovators who've come al- along the way, like Bela Fleck and Noam Pichelny and Tony Trischke and Alan Mundy and all these, uh, certainly Bill Keith, who started the whole melodic trend. So there are definitely um, lines in the sand in the banjo's development, even within bluegrass. But the difference is, I think, if you want to hear someone play doing my time, uh, at least to begin with, it doesn't really matter if it's Bela or if it's Russ Carson or whoever the player may be. It's going to be largely the same thing that Earl did. And I just think that uh, is a little bit singularly uh, related to Earl and his impact on the music versus some of the other instruments. Yeah, it's interesting. There are almost still some kickoffs and turnarounds and fills that you expect to hear on certain songs that have been there since some of those early recordings. Absolutely, yeah. And do you feel um, like there'll be a lot of younger players who maybe have learned their stuff from the people who are influenced by Earl, and they may not know it, but there's still like that that Earl thread comes through whether it's intentional on their part or not to have been influenced by that it's it's sort of impossible not to pass it on isn't it yeah i believe i think i said this uh a couple times when earl passed if you play the banjo with three finger picks your most indelible influence is going to be earl scruggs even if you've never heard him play and the reason is because his imprint is so pronounced on whoever you did primarily get influenced by. So the the trickle-down effect, when you're talking about Earl's playing, is undeniable. And I think that, especially the banjo world right now, because I'm very uh, interested in the banjo world in addition to the bluegrass world, and they're kind of two different communities. And uh, we certainly have some super interesting things happening in the banjo world right now. But the you, you just can't get away from it that the most um, impactful players 
are rooted in Scruggs style. And I think the players who hope to be like them will never attain it if they don't also spend a lot of uh, time and effort and energy understanding what Scruggs did. And I, I came about it in a roundabout way as well. The banjo player that I saw live that got me excited about bluegrass was Scott Vestal. But then Scott, you know, leads to Terry Balcom, uh, who we just passed away, right? And yeah. uh, and then I start going to shows and I see Sonny Osborne. And Crow wasn't out as much, but the Bluegrass Album Band records were, which just absolutely uh, killed me. So I got to Earl not very long after I started playing, but it, it, it did take a bit of time. But if you're serious about banjo playing, I can't imagine you don't end up there. Yeah, and there's that that sort of sense that if you want to be progressive, you've sort of got to know what you're progressing from, and that's always going to lead you back to that, isn't it? I think so, on banjo maybe more than any other instrument, uh, because if you are trying to integrate styles, now if you just want to treat the banjo like a horn and you're you know, playing almost exclusively single string, for instance, uh, the same notes are on the neck of the banjo, uh, right? I mean, we have access to the same information, but the the real genius players are the ones who figure out how to integrate the things that make banjo unique, and that is three picks. It's the, the droning fifth string, which can be your bane, or it can, it can also be an asset, and the most notable players are the ones who are able to combine all of those styles. So you could uh, play the banjo like any other instrument and approach it from, you know, just a jazz perspective, Uh, but you're missing a huge piece of what makes banjo special if you do that. And once you start rolling, then you need to know who Earl Scruggs is. And you hear, like I certainly hear Earl's influence like beyond the banjo, you listen to the guitar playing of Clarence White or you listen to Jerry Douglas play the dobro and, you know, that it's that syncopation that that style of banjo brought that just runs through so many things in the sort of string band world. I agree. And uh, you take a player like Jerry Douglas, who is just phenomenal and a, certainly uh, an instrument-changing musician, but gosh, he loved... Josh Graves. So how does Earl's influence not also um, worm its way into his musicianship? And you can hear him uh, certainly, uh, and Rob Ikes is another guy that that plays a lot of banjo-type roles on Dobro. And see, Josh and Earl were figuring this out together alongside each other. So it's no surprise that since they have three picks and we do too, my word, they have a bar. It's probably the only instrument that is even uh, more unorthodox than banjo, right? But uh, it's it would have been impossible for those two not to inform each other. So it, it's not a surprise that players like Jerry Douglas were also um, influenced by his banjo playing. And I think there's a really interesting point in what you sort of say there about some of those instruments because every instrument presents some problem solving to be done. Like a fiddle or a mandolin is a pretty even tuning. And once you find the patterns, they're movable everywhere. Um, 
but they've got other challenges. But with a guitar, the tuning is a bit weird. With a dobro, like you say, you've got just a chord in one line and a bar and finger picks. And then banjo is a whole other thing. So you've got this fifth string and you've got tuning. But, you know, and I think what makes some of the the playing so fascinating is how you accept those challenges. You don't try and avoid them. You lean into them and, and find a style that works with them. So sort of like, like you were saying earlier about, you know, the, the people who've been most successful are the people who've taken that challenge sort of head on almost. Yeah, and they turn it into an asset. Um, so one of the other challenges with banjo is you don't get much vertical space. So if you're trying to uh, maybe do some chord inversions that still retain some bass lines, you know, you can have some pretty huge stretches uh, where guitar with six strings, because really we, we only have four if you're not fretting the fifth string. So they get so, uh, more of a vertical stretch. So there are some left-hand challenges anytime you start trying to include some voicings and maybe some inversions that you hear on an album that you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to? voice that on banjo um but then you listen to and the fifth string right is is the thing that uh i think bill keith was one of the first guys that i read about who said i learned uh that this could be an ace in the hole that he could use this as a fretted string and then that allowed him to make shifts that had never been possible before on banjo so we we have instances of that um, all around, but you're right. Every instrument brings its own thing, and I think that's one reason you have excellent musicians who are specialists, oftentimes on one instrument. There's something about your particular instrument that speaks to you, that draws you in. Where, for instance, I started with mandolin, and it never captivated me the way the banjo did. Yeah, and you you talk talk to. To some people, I, I'm, I've talked to Jerry Douglas for this, and and Earl was a massive influence. But it was when he first heard the Dobro, he was like, "That's the thing for me." Um, and there's a phenomenal pedal steel player who lives over here in London called B.J. Cole, and he's like just an astounding musician. And I sort of said to him, "Oh, do you play guitar?" He said, "No, I just play this." And it's just it's his thing, and that's another incredibly odd instrument to play. Oh gosh, it, it may be the the Mac Daddy of them all, <laughs> you know, as far as uh, being an eccentric thing to learn how to do. And I heard Victor Wooten say one time uh, that he spent the time he would have spent learning to play other instruments to learn about what he loved about those instruments. He just spent that time putting that on electric bass. So there are a lot of ways to fuse styles. And then if you're incredibly gifted, uh, like Victor Wooten, then that's who you turn out to be as a player of that caliber. And presumably there's something about you can get to a certain level, like with any instrument or learning to do anything in life, you'd reach points where you reach a bit of a, a stalled point where your learning isn't progressing at the speed it used to. And you can switch and then go and play something else at that point, or you can really lean in at that point and go, well, how do I get past this? And those people that only, I mean, you talk about Earl, you know, Earl obviously was also a really cool guitar player. So mm-hmm. it wasn't quite, you know, the one instrument thing. But it is fascinating when people just totally dedicate themselves to that sort of path with an instrument. Right. And it truly, I, I really think this is true, that the more you know, the the more overwhelmed you are by what you don't know. I, that's certainly true in my case. Uh, the world music just gets bigger and the um, 
you know, the realization of what I'm never going to know or understand is heavier and bigger now than it's ever been before. And that's one of the most beautiful things about music is it gives as much as you want to give. It gives as much or as little as you're capable of. So people can learn three chords and strum and have a lifetime full of music and love that. Or if you're incredibly motivated and incredibly gifted in our world, like a, like a Balo or a Chris Thiele or any of those guys, then it never lets up. It's relentless to, to them, J- just the same as the guy that knows the three chords, right? And that's one of the most beautiful things about music in general. And I think Earl's playing is like that. I remember reading that Alan Mundy said, he was asked during COVID what he was doing musically, how he was spending his time. And he said he he was just back in the Scruggs book because every time he revisits it, there's more that he missed. And that is absolutely my experience. I'm more in love with Earl's playing now than I've ever been before. And a song that I feel like I've completely ingested, it, it just, when I go back, there's more there and furthermore nobody has played it as as good as he did it's never happened and the the more in tune you are with the intricacies of what he does the more you appreciate that and i think that's a maturity that we that we all reach when you can see the uh when you can understand that even if technically what he's playing is is simple, it's definitely not easy. So if you think it's easy, then do it and, and sound like that. Nobody has done it. It hasn't happened. And how impressive is that? That this many years later, there are so many of us who basically commit our lives to it, and nobody's gotten there. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that across so many like of the great musicians – you can get the notes, but there's a feel, whether it's Tony Rice or it's Earl Scruggs or it's Clarence White or whoever it is, or some of the amazing sort of jazz sax and horn players. It's like the notes isn't half of it. Like you feel like the notes, when you start learning an instrument, you think if I get the notes, I'm okay. And the notes like aren't the most important bit. They're the, yeah, they're the easy bit almost. Absolutely. It's like reading a hard passage you can read all the words correctly and have absolutely no idea what it just said and uh music is like that as well and i'm so emotionally tied to his playing uh now more than ever i mean it's so easy for me just to when i hear him play to be moved to tears it's like always on the verge it's hard to explain because I'm just overwhelmed by how by how great it is. And even just like watching his his right hand and the efficiency that's there, if you watch his right hand on all these, now we have all these uh, great videos of it, it's like it, it doesn't even move. Everything moves from the middle knuckle down. So it doesn't appear that his uh, index and middle fingers, basically they don't move at all. And and you just some of that's just physiologically. What do your hands do? Uh, but I mean, I, I just look at him play visually, which I didn't have the luxury of, of when I was learning um, because I was a pre YouTube learner, right? So you couldn't see him. But gosh, when you look at the, it's just utter perfection visually. 
and then I hear him play, and everything about it um, just moves me. I was at the Earl Scruggs Center doing a show, I guess a year or two ago, and, and they showed me one of his address books and just his handwriting. Like, everything just matters uh, so much to me, and my life wouldn't have been the life that it's been if he hadn't played the banjo. Nothing about it would be the same. And that's an extraordinary effect to be able to have on somebody. And it's he's had it on a lot of people. I bet he's had it on virtually everyone you're speaking to about this. Yeah, and it's I, it's interesting what you were saying before about sort of putting your stamp on tunes. And like you can think across the history of the last few decades of string band and bluegrass music. And there are certain tunes, like once Tony Rice had recorded Gold Rush, that's how most of us hear it. Once Doc Watson recorded Black Mountain Rag, that's how most of us hear it. Maybe once Chris Thiele and Mike Marshall did Fisher's Hornpipe, that's how we hear it. Russ Barenberg at Big Sciota, that's how we hear it. But but Earl sort of has that effect on almost the entire banjo repertoire. It's sort of astonishing, isn't it? I agree. And there are all these opportunities for gold stars. I teach a lot of lessons, and that's one of the things I call them. Like, uh, you have to remember the difference in learning. When I mentioned that I was a pre-YouTube learner, it changed everything to have access to everything that we do now. So you have to remember that for us, we had to own the record, and we had only that version of it. So uh, if anything, our, our freedom within the Scruggs style has greatly grown because now we have so many multiple takes of him playing the same stuff. But there's still those opportunity for the Scruggs, the Earl Gold Stars, like the C7 on Shuckin' Corn. Um, you know, if you know that, then it's like you're in. You know, you, you're one of us, if you, if you know that. And there are these signature things that he did that... Um, just, I think, haven't ever been uh, recreated in a way that is as signature as it was. I mean, he was creating it as he went, right? But what's amazing to me is that as he was creating, it was already to the level of perfection that no one has surpassed it. That is truly amazing. And I think he must have had an incredibly logical mind because it's very mathematically perfect as well uh the way he integrated roll see groups of three right so the way he was able to make groups of three sound logical uh by integrating backward rolls and things like that that uh other people had used three fingers uh there's some debate over who's the first guy to have played a backward roll but i think we can all agree that as far as that machine gun precision pristine execution and level of perfection. He was absolutely the, the guy to get there first and then to present it to the masses. Yeah, and there's that, um, I think it's a Steve Martin quote about before Earl Scruggs, nobody sounded like Earl Scruggs, and after Earl Scruggs, everybody sounded like Earl Scruggs, or at least tried to. It's, you know. That's and a it, great quote. And it sort of blows my mind that you listen to those recordings from the late 40s and just, like, touring around the country in the back of a car with no sleep and not always having a hotel room and having to like presumably a calfskin banjo head on a banjo in the falls like the amount of just maintenance to make sure that your instrument sounded okay and was able to stay in tune and you read those stories about him holding his banjo 
up to a light bulb to get the skin as tight as he could before recording. And then you just put on some headphones and listen, and they sound so good. It's truly amazing, isn't it? I had a, a banjo with a calfskin head uh, for about two days, and I left. Uh, I, I had it on the top of a mountain, and when I went down the mountain and opened up the case, it was split in two. And I wow. thought, there's, there's just no way I, I'm going to deal with this, right? And that's just, you, you summed it up well. I mean, the, the amount of playing that they did, because they would go play and then be back for WSM, uh, I mean, they played all the time, and I think you had to. Uh, they were a very polished sound as a band. If you were going to call, if you think about Bill Monroe and uh, Reno and Smiley and the Stanley Brothers, uh, they were definitely the most refined and, you could argue, most commercial presentation of bluegrass from that generation. And one reason they were so dang good is because they played all the time together yeah yeah when i talked to jerry douglas he, he talked about the the sort of the choreography and the stagecraft of flat and scrubs scrubs being a really big thing for him as well and that that's something that had sort of gone from the music until fairly recently that people had forgotten about that because everybody's mic'd up and everybody's able to stay where they are just stand in a line and play and um, records are the same way you know they recorded that way also so a mixed record today is far from what the mix that they would have gotten when they recorded uh, themselves. And there's a beauty even in that because whatever's featured is really featured and you hear it really well. And it can make learning backup sometimes frustrating uh, for banjo players or dobro players, whoever's trying to hear uh, the licks in the background. But there was a real focal point when you ran a show and recorded albums that way. Yeah, and knowing where your place is at any given time and just, I guess, you have to be hyper-aware of playing for the song because nobody's got a fader to turn you up or turn you down. And that's True. and I think it's really interesting, actually, because you talked about Jerry Douglas and Rob Ikes um, and the sort of influence of, of Earl on them. And, and they both, to me, feel like players that play to a song and play to back up it and like they find their spaces like Jerry Douglas is maybe the best in the world at finding the spaces between the vocal lines and just and and, and that's and I feel like that comes from there totally um I mean there have been I taught a semester at ETSU at their bluegrass program and when I um was teaching a class on backup I actually did the whole thing just with Jerry Douglas uh and I just we just evaluated some recordings of him and he could just play one note or sometimes two notes. And the fill is so signature to the song that the song is not the same without that fill. Uh, so I think there's a sensibility that comes from listening to players who were so good at that. And you can never argue that Earl Scruggs wasn't tasteful. So there's never going to be an example of him uh, playing something that, you know, distracts from Lester's vocal or steps on anyone else. So I think he, I think he was just a classy guy and he was a sensible uh, human being. And, and I think he played the banjo that way. And it created this standard of supportiveness, support in a group, so that you're not um, drawing attention to yourself, even though as banjo players we can zero in 
and you listen to the up the neck back up on Captain Caroline or something like that, and it it's absolutely ever present. Same with Lester's vocal, but it's complimentary. It's not distracting. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the joyous things about bluegrass and string band music in general is that it can be some of the most complicated, high octane, tricksy, you know, energetic, twisty, turny stuff there is, and yet it's also grounded in a desire to get people's toes tapping and make them smile and deliver a song. And it could you could end up in sort of eighties guitar shred territory where the point is just to show how good you are and the play exactly players like like Earl there's that's never the agenda it's always never to, the agenda to make everybody else look good and showcase the song I agree and I mean we certainly uh have moved into that territory uh and sometimes it, you know in a really impressive way but that was never what he was about and I think it's just uh I think it's just a a mindset and a decision that they made. And I think it also aligned with his personality in general. Um, You know, by all accounts, he was a pretty humble, laid-back guy. So I don't think he ever had a desire. I believe he believed in himself and he was confident and he knew he was special as well. He should have known. But I I don't think he ever desired uh, to be the center of attention beyond being the best banjo player he could be. Yeah, and there's something, I think you you described it slightly earlier about sort of the kind of person he was and he played the banjo that way. And that's the thing that I think, you know, you 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 can't really be a good musician unless you are expressing who you are through your instrument. That's sort of your job, isn't it? In whatever way you do that. Um, and it's hard to imagine, like talking here and here about Doc Watson, but talking about, about Earl, you can't imagine somebody who is that good, but also that sympathetic a musician to the people around them. Like it's impossible to imagine them not being like a, you know, a, an interesting, cool human being too. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and the most, uh, the most impactful players are the ones who move us, and those are the ones who do express their personalities and their playing. I mean, in the banjo world, if you listen to Sonny Osborne, his playing is sassy, and it's uh, it's just kind of a smart aleck approach to the instrument, and it's funny, you know. And and so he's the maybe the best example I have of being able. To, to learn all the notes and completely miss the essence. There are so many Sonny solos that I can play right along with him. And uh, if you just isolated what I was doing, I sound like a barbershop quartet and he sounds like the Fairfield Four. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, uh, and that was an expression of who he was. And uh, Tony Trishka is another guy that absolutely moves me when he plays. Um, you never know what he's going to do. Uh, he's fearless, and he makes me laugh out loud sometimes because, man, he goes for it, and it's awesome, right? So you really hear his his playing, and I think that um, Earl was a pretty calculated guy, you know, and his, uh, while it can sound playful and instinctive, and it was so intuitive to him, right? That's one thing I try to remind 
students is that we're trying to play what felt natural to him. That doesn't mean he didn't work on it. And, and I'm sure there were kinks he had to figure out in a major way. But if something felt terrible to him, he just wouldn't have played it. So we're trying to replicate something that came fairly natural to him. Um, but it does embody, I think, a lot of the characteristics that we associate with bluegrass banjo, which is a very tempered, controlled, um, methodical approach to playing an instrument. Yeah, it's really interesting when you put it that way because you, you, there's certain instruments you can probably pick up or sit down at on the piano and make, you know, sort of noodle your way around and find things. But there is such a um, an amount of like almost engineering you can do to learn the banjo neck, and it's all all that you know. I I owned I never classed myself as somebody who's been a banjo player. I owned one for a while, and it baffled me the idea of being up the neck and having two open strings and two not and playing melodic line, I, I think in a much more linear way than that. And it just, it does require a certain kind of organized brain, doesn't it? It but, does. But then, but then to take that and make it creative and to be able to make you laugh, make you cry, make you tap your foot, all those things. You oh gosh. Park that and just go with it. Sure. Uh, but it's addictive. If you get a kick out of it, it's like a leap of faith at first. You just play this role and you do whatever you do with your left hand, and which is oftentimes not very much, really. And you just trust that if I play these roles and I do the right things, it's going to turn into music. And it does. And if you are enthralled by that, then you're hooked. And banjo is the instrument for you. It's an instrument of execution, and it's definitely not for everybody. Uh, you know, the the people who just want to emote, and they just don't want to have to adhere to all these uh, rules, they're never going to sound like a clean banjo player. Uh, so it, it definitely attracts a certain personality, I think. And uh, one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life was Casey Dreesen, the fiddle player Casey Dreesen, uh, played banjo tab on fiddle and if you don't think it's a whacked instrument you should hear someone do that and when you actually hear the notes that we're playing uh it would never work on really anything else the way it works on the banjo yeah yeah and it's an astonishing thing and just i mean the fact that where you know l obviously wasn't the only three-finger banjo player of that generation. But the fact we're still talking about it now, about how it, how moving it is and how intricate and interesting and that ability. I, you know, what, what Earl did was extraordinary, but unless he had made our toes tap and made us cry and made us laugh and smile, we probably wouldn't still be talking about it. You know, it's that, like you say, it's the emotion that, that keeps it fresh and real and right at the forefront of our minds even now. Absolutely. And if you're someone like me who's just set about trying to get as good at it as you can, it just it's it's a hard thing to put into words, really, you know, because it's uh, it's such a defining contribution to the genre as a whole. It's not just the instrument. If you love bluegrass and you and you live in, uh, you know, the bluegrass world there's just no separation between scrub style playing and, and the music. And you cannot overstate the value of what he created 
and how resilient it is in that it's still largely unchanged. And that was Kristen Scott Benson. Um, Last on this episode, by obviously by no means least, is Alan Mundy. Um, Those of you who listen regularly will remember I talked to Alan for the Clarence White tribute that I put out uh, towards the end of last year. Um, Alan, again, legend of the banjo world. He's, you know, spent many, many years thinking about this stuff, talking about this stuff, playing banjos. Remarkably humble guy, deeply interesting, um, as always, a joy to talk to. Um, So here's Alan Mundy and his take on Earl and his influence. There is a, I want to say a controversy, but a, a question about, you know, who actually invented, I'll use the word invented, bluegrass. And some people would say Bill Monroe. I would, myself. Uh, and others sort of credit Earl. And I wanted to say this, and it's just, this once again is really just me, is that for Earl to do what he did, the context was very, very meaningful. You know, Earl could have played in a country band, possibly, you know, and wound up with a drummer and whatnot. And my daughter, he would have just stayed in North Carolina and been a banjo player that played in 1950s country music. But he didn't. He was in Bill Monroe's band. And that made a huge, 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 huge difference in the perception of his playing, not only to us listening, but also to him making that music. And additionally, having Lester Flatt and the Foggy Mountain Boys around him gave him an opportunity to make the banjo sound what it sounds like now. And Monroe kind of said it in a backhanded way. He said, bluegrass has been very, very good for the banjo. And I tend to kind of agree with that, is that Monroe had this band and rhythm that the banjo fit in the way Earl played it perfectly. And so by Earl playing every night, I'll say every night, let's say every night on the road, both with Bill Monroe and then with Flat and Scruggs Band, he developed all these uh, idioms, all these basic cliches of banjo playing that we have nowadays. And uh, one of the things Earl did later in life was he quit playing with Lester Flatt and played with his sons because he thought his banjo playing sounded good in that context. And I wouldn't argue with him. It did. But I think it sounded better with Lester Flatt and Bill Monroe. So the context that you play this style in makes a big difference in the music you wind up playing and what you sound like. So Earl was very fortunate to have been taken in by Bill Monroe. And Bill Monroe was very fortunate that Earl came and played with him. So it was a symbiotic relationship 
You know, Earl played, the notes he played is one thing, but the sound he made was the big thing. You know, you go back to that Foggy Mountain banjo uh, record, the classic yellow cover, Flatten Scruggs and all the instrumentals. I've never heard a banjo, anybody's banjo, sound like that. I don't know. Part is due to the recording, for sure, uh, technique, but the sound of Earl and the ba- and the context of that band was just marvelous. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase something that I heard. Somebody told me that Peter Warnick said, and it goes something like this, is when you hear that album in my youth at the time, as I heard it, it sounded magical. And it was, I couldn't imagine how it was done. It was the best music I'd ever heard. Couldn't imagine how it was done. But somehow, I thought I could do it. You know, it didn't put me off. You know, it. so there's something that is really high level about it, but also inviting. It invites you in and and says, you know, with just a few understandings, you could do this too. Well, you can. And it's, you know, thousands and thousands and millions of people play Earl Scruggs notes, you know, in, the, in that style. But the part that is missing, in my case, is the sound. I never could sound like him. And ultimately, I quit even looking for it or, on my on my level, on just where I am. And uh, he played a Gibson. I played Stellings, you know, banjos, and just threw up my hand and said, well, I'll just do what I can do. And uh, I'm here sitting talking to you. So there we are. Yeah, and it's it's the same story that you hear sort of all over the place when you talk about great musicians. It's the the thing that is them is the thing you can't replicate. You can replicate the instrument and the notes, and it's like the stories about Tony Rice trying to sound like Clarence White and eventually giving up and deciding to sound like Tony Rice, and now the rest absolutely. of the world wants to sound like Tony Rice. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and all the guitar players that want to sound like Charlie Christian. And they wound up sounding like Wes Montgomery or Jim Hall or Kurt Bellis or, or Barney Kessel or that era of player, you know, Jimmy Rainey and Tal Farlow. They all sounded, they gave up, but they were sucked in by that sound of, in part, by Charlie Christian. There were others, but Charlie Christian in a way. So it, and for uh, other players, like you said, Clarence White, was a big draw in guitar playing, for sure. As was, you know, there were others, but uh, Doc Watson. So, anyway, you know, one of the things that Earl Scruggs and just music in general has given to us is, oh, how do I say it? A life that is different than what it might have been otherwise. And I'll say richer and fuller and uh, more varied. And and if I'd have gone into 
you know, I've had bankers tell me, boy, I wish I could do what you do. And I say, well, you need to give up that bass boat and that three-car garage house Mm -hmm. and that European vacation every summer. (laughs) Yet I had to give all that up because you have to do a different lifestyle in a sense if you want to be a musician and especially one that is so, uh, what a, what do I want to say? A niche, niche, however mm. they say that word, uh, kind of music. You really have to want to do it and be willing to do the things that you have to do to play that. But it gave me something to do with my life that I might not have had otherwise. You know, and you could do a lot worse than burying your head in music and trying to decipher one note and then the next note and then the next one after that. And, you know, that's a pretty good life. I've, I've done well and I'm happy and I feel fulfilled. So he gave a lot of people uh, something to do within their time. So and it's place that, is hard. That sort of sense that, you know, back in the day when, Earl was going into a recording studio for the first time or sitting at home learning all that band. He, you know, he would have had no sense in his head that at this point we'd still be talking about it, although what he did was creating history. He was just doing what he was driven to do by his curiosity and his passion for music. And, you, you know, the rest is extraordinary, yeah, but yeah. there's no way you can foresee yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it is uh, passion. It just burns. You know, I had a... There is a a, a presence in the bluegrass acoustic music world by the name of Banjo Ben Clark. And he's done well with him for online music instruction and uh, retail sales and a lot, a lot of stuff. And uh, his story is uh, illustrative of many people's in a sense is that he was a Ph.D. candidate in etymology, which is the study of bugs. And he said as soon as he got into playing the banjo, he would be sitting and he was writing uh, up a report of some study, experiment he was doing. And he said as he was writing, he could not think of anything else but the banjo. You know, it's just going on in his. And finally, he said, I quit because it was just so consuming. And music can do that. And uh, people find that okay, I hope, to be consumed by music and wanting to be involved in it and spending your time listening to it and trying to decipher it and be a part of it. That's another thing. The community of musicians is pretty, pretty wonderful. And I'm, I live in Springfield, Missouri. I haven't lived in Nashville or LA for 40 and 50 years, uh, and still enjoy the community here in Springfield, Missouri, where I live now. When I was in Win- Wimberley, Texas, great, great community of musicians and people. And they're all 
all the ones I've ever been involved with are very welcoming and encouraging. And it's a, it feels like a real healthy environment. I know musicians get a bad rap for drugs and all that sort of stuff and alcohol and the places you wind up playing in. And that's all true. But in terms of the people around you and the community, it's very, very healthy and sharing and supportive and well-wishing. They want everybody to do well, you know. And so it's been really good for me. And that's all. I won't say it's all Earl Scruggs, (coughs) but it's the banjo, certainly. And then Earl Scruggs is uh, part of that. So, uh, yeah, it, it, we're sort of talking about you going back to the Scruggs banjo book and and sort of you know all the interesting music that that sparked. And do you you talked about that Foggy Mountain banjo record? And is that the first time you heard it play? Was that the first exposure you had to it? Well, I'm going to say yes. Uh, no, it was is my brother. And I, I mean to, meant to ask him what year it was, but I would say the late 50s, early 60s. He came home from the Navy uh, and had a guitar and a record on how to play it. And the record was called The Folk Singer's Guitar Guide by Pete Seeger. So I thought Pete Seeger was a guitar player. And so I'd go out to the record store. I want to hear more of it. And I bought a Pete Seeger record. And, well, he played banjo. Crap. <laughs> but I listened to it and really enjoyed that sound so I got a banjo and I played, got his book on how to play it and played it in his style and frailing a little bit for you know a year or so and I had a neighbor and I'm going to say his name because I like saying people's names uh, Gary McNabb if I can remember the names Gary was a and his brother David were neighborhood kids, and we'd play together. And he noticed that I was interested in the banjo, and one Christmas he gave me, this would be the early 60s, Flat and Scruggs Foggy Mountain Banjo record. And I went, whoa, <laughs> I've never heard that in my life. You know, and I probably had, you know, on the radio or uh, folk music boom was going on in the early 60s. But I just came more aware of it and what to look for in banjo music and whatnot. So that's what really fired me. And then not long after that was the Dillards with Doug Dillard. And uh, that sort of lit my fire also. Doug was a big influence uh, and the Dillards in general, very much so. And when did you first get to see Earl play? Well, there were a few times on TV. I'm from Norman, Oklahoma, so there was not... uh, It was a lot of country music and Western swing, which I love, too. Mm. I love that. And uh, so there was not a lot of bluegrass, either on the radio or on TV other than folk music shows. And I think I saw Flat and Scruggs on a show called Hoot Nanny, maybe. And uh, they did Little Maggie 
is what I remember. So uh, that was probably the first time I saw him, probably, yeah. Did you get to spend any time with Earl? Hardly ever, never, ever. Uh, I was in Nashville uh, in 69 to 71 for two years. And I worked with Jimmy Martin, and Jimmy knew Earl and was going to have Louise book him. And we maybe went over to their house, but I don't think I did. As I recall, I don't think I met him at that time. And, uh, you know, there's a, a YouTube video from a full-length presentation called Bluegrass Country Soul that has a, scenes from a Carlton Haney's festival. And Jimmy was on that show, and I was the banjo player. And that was my last date that I did with Jimmy. And on that, Earl, and I think Carlton organized it, Earl played Foggy Mountain Breakdown and Daryl Dixie, maybe. And he got a, all the other banjo players to come out there and play. And that's, a, you know, just in that being around him there was the only time I ever was around him and watched him play. And I will say this, I was standing on stage and he said a few words and then he was going to do start Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And he just sort of, I'm going to use the word pinch, if anybody knows what that means, where you just grab several strings. And when he did that, and the tone came out, I wanted to run and hide. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just so astounding to be there and hear him do that. And then when certainly when he got into the tune, I thought, wow, what am I doing here? And uh, I actually looked for a way out. (laughs) And uh, uh, recently there was a reunion of the people that musicians with the filmmakers that made that at the IBMA in uh, Owensboro. And in this video, there is a young kid, and I forget his name, a young blonde-headed kid, maybe 14 or 15 at the time, who was part of that group. Well, he was at this reunion, and he's retired fireman or something now. And he reminded me that on when Earl did Daryl uh, Dipsy, that this young person had broken a string And he reminded me that I offered him my banjo (laughs) because I didn't want to be a part. You know, I thought, you know, this is, it just didn't feel right. You know, I thought, especially for me. Now, the other players, the new Earl, and had been known him for years and years and years, they felt comfortable. And they're great, great players, Sonny Osborne and J.D. and Bill Emerson. And probably Don Stover, and I can't remember who else was there. But for me, it was, uh, I would have rather been in the audience, I think. But anyway, I was there, and that's actually the only time I was ever around him at all. 
It's extraordinary when you think about the kind of um, how sort of technical some of the aspects of that that style of banjo playing are, and all of all the moving parts that go into making it happen, and yet the tone is the thing that that you know that you're singling out from all that that makes the difference. It's not you know, I mean, there's so many contributions that are made to the banjo, but yeah. And let me point out. Earl had his tone. Bill Emerson has his tone. Sonny Osborne has his tone. Alan Shelton had his tone. Doug Dillard, you know, Don Reno, Ralph Stanley, they're all different. But if you're trying to sound like Earl and you don't have the tone, you know, which I didn't, uh, you need to do something else. You know, or sound differently. You sound differently. And, you know, there's, uh, when I record, engineers would always ask me, do you like the tone of the banjo? And I would always respond, not always, but of the millions of ways a banjo can sound good, that is one of them. <laughs> you know, so I never, maybe that's my problem, is I never had this this vision of this one tone uh, I should have probably, and it should have been Earl's, because it's still the best. I think I shouldn't say that. It's it's really good. It's really really good. But I loved Alan Shelton's tone, and he played an arch top. I loved Doug Dillard's tone. He played an arch top. Sonny Osborne sounded different. You know, everybody sounds different, and that's part of. You know the beauty of it all, but just Earl is sort of like unique among everybody, I think. And that if you talk to a hundred banjo players, ninety-nine of them will say Earl Scruggs. You know, seems to me. Yeah, and it's a wonderful thing, and it's why I guess it's you know we're sitting here all these years later talking about it still and why people are still hearing those recordings for the first time and they sound fresh and they sound exciting and they sound, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and if you listen to Earl with Bill Monroe, the very earliest recording, I think, is of Monroe on the Grand Ole Opry with Earl and they do Little Maggie. (coughs) He didn't sound like Earl Scruggs. To me, I mean, he was worthy. Of course, that was 1946 or 7 or whenever it was. And uh, he progressed. He developed. I mean, he got better banjo. That first banjo, I'm guessing, didn't have a tone ring. Uh, There are experts out there that know way, way more than I do. But as soon as he identified... This other tone in those Gibson and a Granada in particular, which is a beautiful, beautiful sounding banjo. I've played only a few Gibson Granadas from that era, and they do have a beautiful, beautiful tone, unlike uh, others, I'll say. And I always like to tell the story when I was with Jimmy Martin. There was a gentleman from North Carolina named Tom McKinney, who's 
ultimately developed a capo called the McKinney capo, which is still in production, although Tom is gone. He died. But he came to Nashville, and he brought a guitar and a banjo he wanted to sell. And the banjo was the banjo that ultimately Sonny Osborne bought. And he offered it to me. You know, he came by Jimmy's house. Jimmy said, this guy's got a banjo for sale. This is 1970, I'll say, or 71. And he wanted $2,000, which is probably worth $200,000 now. I don't know. But it didn't matter. You know, $2,000 was like, it might as well have been 200000 You know, back for me working for Jimmy Martin on my own, my parents certainly wouldn't have understood spending $2,000 when you could buy a car, a good used car for seven or $800. You know, wow, why would you want to spend 2000 But so I played that banjo. Beautiful, beautiful. Bill Evans has a couple of uh, Granadas. Beautiful. They sound beautiful. They sound different than the other styles of Gibson. So Earl sort of picked up on that Granada sound and really uh, went with it, you know. As soon as he got that kind of a banjo, he was on his way. And that's it. That was Alan Mundy. This is the end of part one of the Earl Scruggs 100th birthday tribute. Um, There'll be more next week. I've got some wonderful guests. I've got Jerry Douglas, um, and I'll tell you a funny story about how that recording happened. Uh, next week but I've got Jerry Douglas I've got Tim O'Brien and Alison Brown uh, still to come I've got Carl Tuttle Trey Hensley well I was born um, and some more bits and pieces to sort out so there's some more really cool stuff coming lots of time to celebrate Earl um, yeah just really enjoying this but thanks for listening to part one uh, I'll see you next time have a great week and happy picking <laughs>